you know, the data becomes, I don't want to call it unruly, but uh, it becomes very complicated when you have like nine tabs mm -hmm. uh, in which you're collecting all different kinds of data and trying to compile it in a way that that fits, you know, that fits with the data, fits with each other. Uh, it fits with the kind of story you're trying to tell. Welcome to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications and WAER. I'm Kevin Kloss, and today I'm speaking with Nasheen Hussein, a professor of journalism who has a real focus on data-driven reporting. She shares how she first dipped her toe into that water and how it changed the way she looks at journalism. Nasheen, thanks so much for coming by and chatting with me today. Of course, I'm happy to be here. So looking at the work that you do, the words that I see come up a lot is that there's an emphasis on data analysis and data visualization. I think maybe people have a general understanding for data analysis, but the latter I think maybe people wouldn't be as sure about. So when you use those phrases to describe the kind of work you're doing, what are we really talking about? Sure. I think um, data visualization is essentially what you see in news pieces that have a data analysis focus um, but want to show people exactly what they're talking about. Um, so if you have a trend that you're talking about in a piece, um, reading it in text can feel very different than seeing it in front of your face um, in the form of a chart or in some kind of design decisions even, um, even other visual forms of telling a story or a process, for example. Um, I think that is a lot of what data visualization is about. It is not not journalism. It is very much part of journalism, and many would argue that it's um, you know a form of journalism that thinks about effectiveness before anything else. Um, what is the best way to tell this um, set of analyses, this trend? Um, how can we best show that to somebody in an immediate fashion? Um, so it really focuses on um, conveying something uh, quickly. Going out of your way there to say that it's not not <laughs> journalism, is that something that people have, have said in the early stages of this kind of work? Oh, man, that's a heavy question. So I think um, there is sometimes a sense in newsrooms particularly where the data folks um, can be seen as like a service desk more than um, a group of reporters who report mm. in a specific way. And so particularly now that I'm in a position of teaching students about data journalism, I try to go out of my way to emphasize that no one should be telling them that they're not journalists or they're not quote unquote real journalists. Um, they are just as much journalists as any anyone you know working in front of the camera or uh, writing a story. Um, it's just a specific um, form of journalism, and, and that doesn't mean that they're not real. And it's something that you've put a focus on. Are there certain stories that you feel have really benefited from that kind of added context, which from where I'm sitting sounds like we're mostly talking about visual representations of information. Are there certain kinds of reporting that you think really have benefited from that? Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, being a data journalist now for several years, it almost makes you question stories that don't have a data component because, you know, traditional journalism, you have people telling stories. And that means that you go out and interview people. Mm -hmm. So, you know, between like, let's say three to six people um, and they talk about their experiences. And that's very important. Um, 
But I think once you add a data component to it, it really helps the reader understand that these people's experiences are either part of a trend or they're part of an outlier maybe. Um, I think it helps you understand the story within its context. And so now, honestly, when I read stories that, that don't tell me about the scale of what's going on, I'm a little bit, um, you know, hesitant to believe them maybe even a little bit. Um, so I think what data journalism does in specific stories is tells you how often this is happening or if it's not happening that much. Um, so one of the stories that, you know, I, one of the topics I covered um, in my cu- final couple years at the Tribune, the Chicago Tribune, um, were around COVID and incarceration. And I mean, when you read the reports and the research out of that in order to report on that for a, for a public-facing news organization, you understand the scale um, at which COVID in um, prisons uh, is and was very terrible um, when I was reporting on it. I think the latest research said it was four times more likely for you to contract COVID if you are uh, living in an incarcerated s- space um, rather than if you were just in the general population. Now, you can interview, you know, three inmates and like three people on the outside and tell that story. But when you put it in scale and when you give it a sense of the context and the numbers, it really hits in a different way, I think. Now, you mentioned that this is something you're presenting to students through your teaching. I would imagine for a lot of students, this is different than maybe what they think of when they think of journalism or maybe what's being taught a lot of other classes. How have they responded to it? Is this something they've really embraced or has there been some buy-in that you needed to get them to? Definitely the latter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, students come in, you know, before before each uh, data and digital journalism course, I give them a survey, like a pre-class survey, and I ask them some questions about what they've done and how they feel about the course. And, you know, to be fair, I've only taught this twice. Um, but consistently, I have seen that every almost every student, I would say maybe more than 80% of the students, um, express a fear of math. So I think they they immediately, um, you know, correlate data journalism with, I think, what they think of as like high school math, which is like algebra, geometry, calculus, um, very little of which we do in data journalism. Um, so they come in with a, with a strong fear of, I think I'm going to be bad at this. Um, and my job often and the rest of the people teaching this course, we try to show them that one, there are lots of versions of this kind of journalism. Um, if you're, for example, like visually talented, um, you can illustrate something that can be a really cool way to do data journalism. Um, but also, too, that the data aspects of journalism do not go away if you're not a data journalist. So even if they go on to just write text, right, just write print stories or even be broadcast reporters, they are still going to have to be working with data. And so you don't have to take this course and then go be a data journalist, but you do have to know about data journalism in your regular journalism. And we try to convince them of that and show them that in topics that they care about. No, I do want to talk a little bit about some specific pieces that you've written. And the one that kind of stands out to me the most when I just go back and take a look at it is it's the, the quite extensive piece that you worked on regarding the travel ban in uh, 2017. Walk me through sort of how that all came about. It, it, it's very extensive read yeah. on the on the HuffPost for anyone who wants to search for you and find that it's, it, it's a great read, but it's very involved. So kind of talk me through how that all started to come together for you. 
Full credit for that piece goes to Rueda Abdelaziz, who is a reporter at the Huffington Post who pitched the piece. Um, she started out as a fellow um, with the investigative reporters and editors. Uh, they have a Journalists of Color fellowship that she um, won, I think, uh, early last year and started working on this piece. Um, this was a piece, uh, again, yeah, it's on HuffingtonPost.com, you can find it, um, that collected, she collected data and stories from people who were affected by the travel ban in 2017, which former President uh, Trump implemented pretty much immediately upon taking office. Um, and her process um, was basically to reach out to organizations that worked with families who had been affected by the ban um, to look for government data around this issue and uh, to kind of send out calls through emails and through social media to get um, people to talk to her about this. Um, she found sources. She, um, you know, collected all this data in, you know, literally spreadsheets. Um, and my role in that was as a uh, mentor of sorts. So IRE gave her a few mentors that she worked with throughout the year, um, and I was one of the data mentors. That's how I started. Um, eventually, um, you know, the data becomes, I don't want to call it unruly, but uh, it becomes very complicated when you have like nine tabs mm -hmm. uh, in which you're collecting all different kinds of data and trying to compile it in a way that, that fits, you know, that fits with the data, fits with each other. Uh, it fits with the kind of story you're trying to tell. Um, and so I came on to the project um, as someone who would be doing analysis on the data and trying to figure out ways to visualize that data. Um, in total, I think we had almost 900 cases of people who were affected um, in very specific ways by the travel ban. The, the most, I think, affecting um, part of that story was hearing from people who had been separated from their families. And I think I want to say that was a third of those cases, um, about a third of those cases. So it, that means somebody is separated from their spouse, somebody is separated from their child. Um, we had 11 cases where a family was separated and a family member died, um, you know, abroad, um, and their family could not see them um, because of the travel ban. Um, so it was, um, even just working on the data of that piece, it was a pretty, a pretty heavy piece. I mean, that's a pretty moving story you tell there just you know as brief as brief as it was giving some some generalities there as you're digging through that data you know are you are you starting to adopt the feeling that the, the things that you're seeing in those numbers are things that are underreported if not ignored in other reporting yeah that's a great point so you know of the almost 900 cases um i mean that's 900 cases, that's 900 people. Mm -hmm. We know that there were way more people affected by the travel ban than 900 people. Um, so we know and we state very clearly in the piece that this is definitely an undercount. There are a lot of repercussions that can happen if somebody speaks about their experience. Um, and I've seen this in my incarceration reporting and we see it in you know, any, any piece where you're reporting on marginalized communities, it is in inherently a risk for them to talk to you. Um, so we know this is an undercount. Um, we know that, you know, ho hopefully more people will, uh, you know, reach out to Rueda and tell her um, about their stories. Um, I think there is a benefit to, to telling those stories and to collecting the data around them, because if we don't know how many people are affected, we can't really do much to address their needs, their issues, or change anything. How hard is it to get someone from one of those marginalized communities to talk to you, given, as you just said, that there is some risk in doing so? 
it's pretty hard. <laughs> um, you know, in, in the investigative work that I've done, it has really, it takes a lot of time um, to get someone to trust you. Um, and it requires you to be very honest and authentic about um, how you are going to handle their story. I, I remember um, in J school at Berkeley, I had a professor, you know, who would repeat to us that um, it is a privilege to be able to tell people's stories. It's something they're giving you. Um, and I think it's the same with data reporting. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what kind of form you're putting their story in. It's their story. And so you have to really um, give them time and be very honest about how you're going to how you're going to talk about their story, especially if they're marginalized and they have very valid fears around being in, you know, American media. So you've talked about incarceration. It's come up a, cu- a couple of different times just in our, in our brief conversation here. And one of the stories that, that you also worked on was talking about, um, and I'm going to air quotes this, Guantanamo North, mm-hmm. which was a facility that, and correct me if I'm wrong, was, was primarily housing um, Muslim um, individuals who were who had been in- incarcerated, and maybe some of the neglect, if that's fair to say, that took place at that facility. How did you find out about that story? Because again, as I'm working through this logically, if there is neglect like that, that's not something that's you know going to be broadcast and well known. How do you end up discovering something like that for a story like this? Yeah. So the um, they're called communication management units. I found out about them through uh, just my reading. I was mm-hmm. reading, um, you know, at the time I was working at the Tribune and I wanted to do more work around writing pieces um, that had to do with Muslim communities and civil liberties issues. Um, at the Tribune, I spent a lot of time doing data reporting for other people, um, which I enjoyed and I learned a lot from, but I wanted to do a little bit of my own reporting. Um, I was reading a blog post, and um, I, I don't remember which blog, and uh, that makes me sad, but I read a blog post in which someone described these units. I had never heard of these units. Grant, and, and, you know, this is, keep in mind, I was working for the largest newspaper mm-hmm. in the Midwest, and not once had I known about these units that were based in the Midwest. And to me, that's the real striking thing so far, just to jump in real quick, is you're knee-deep in all of this, mm-hmm. and you hadn't even heard about this. I was like stunned. Yeah, right. just as stunned as you are. Um, and um, yeah, it was weird to not have heard about them. But again, as you as you alluded to earlier, um, likely that was very intentional that I had not heard of heard about them. And I think a lot of people haven't. Um, so the 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 proportion of, um, you know, Muslim to non-Muslim inmates likely has uh, gone down. But when they opened, um, I think it was 45 of the 55 initial inmates were Muslim. Um and, you know, when they opened in, I think it was 2006 and 2008, there was no kind of public comment period um, around these units. They, uh, you know, they there were a lot of due process issues that I reported on at the Tribune. Um, and because there was a lot of critique around these units, um, they have, you know, they they have addressed kind of the Muslim issue by adding new people into the units who are not Muslim, so that proportion is different now than it used to be. Um, these units are uh, used for people who they say need enhanced or more effective um, communication monitoring. Um, with the people that I spoke to who have had family members in those units, um, what this seems to mean is that you know you um, speak to your family a lot less than uh, if you were in a normal prison unit. Um, 
which you know n- normal prison units have a lot of restraints anyway, so it wouldn't wouldn't be that different. But but you know when you're restricted in that way, it makes a huge difference. Um, furthermore, if you you know have a non English native language, um, you you are not you know allowed to uh, speak in that language. Um, there's a lot of restrictions around email, mail, all of that stuff. Um, and yeah, these are used for people who have been uh, charged with kind of like, t- for the Muslims at least, uh, kind of terrorism uh, adjacent crimes. The issue with the units though, um, and this is reflected in the two lawsuits that um, came about in the past several years around these units is for a lot of these for a lot of these folks, um, there there is a one there is a due process issue with getting out of them. So you can't really have an effective appeals process. And the cases that we saw, a lot of those appeals were ignored or kind of routed around in weird ways. Um, but two, in some of the cases, the the reason that uh, the inmate was given for being put in a communication management unit was wrong or uh, inaccurate or based on something that they were accused of but not charged of. In one of the, in the, the main case that I wrote about, um, the inmate was uh, accused in the trial part of his case of uh, associating or communicating with al-Qaeda. Um, he was never charged of that and it was never actually proven. Um, and But that was the reason he was given for being put into a CMU. So just based on like their own legal records, um, <laughs> you know, that's an inaccurate charge. That's an inaccurate um, thing to say about somebody. The thing that you see with these cases, and, and honestly, not just with CMUs, but in cases of, um, you know, Muslim communities and civil liberties in general, is that as soon as you, as soon as you use the word kind of, you use the word terrorism and the rules are gone, um, you know, the due process rules are gone. Um, now, I, I can't sit here and, you know, make a judgment on what people feel when they hear the word terrorism um but but part of the part of the basis of this country is that there is due process and there are rules that you have to follow and there is some sense of equality that's supposed to exist um so that's a lot of what that reporting is based in is is this idea that we have of what we're like versus the reality of what things are actually like do you feel since since your story came out about uh, Guantanamo North, if you will, has there been more reporting on these other units? Because just hearing you describe this one, it it seems like something that is not talked about, and if it exists, something that absolutely deserves more attention. I haven't seen anything um, following up, and to be fair, I reported on that in 2019. The year after the pandemic started, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, reporters are tired, and I mm-hmm. <laughs> feel the same way, and I understand that. Um, but no, I haven't seen much more reporting on these specific units. I myself am working on more reporting around these units, um, but no, it, it's it's really you know, again, I don't I don't blame reporters. I think there's a lot going on, um, and I think there is this idea that. Any kind of reporting and incarceration is tough because there is a a public idea that if someone did something wrong, then whatever's going on, they kind of deserve it. Um, I mean, I hate to say that out loud, but I mm-hmm. but I do I do get the sense that even with my you know non-Muslim related incarceration reporting, that's kind of what you feel people are thinking, and it's it's hard to work through that. But um, 
I, th- I still think it's important work to do. How has COVID, which has come up a couple different times now, how has COVID impacted your ability to tell some of these stories of these underrepresented communities? Perhaps if they are underrepresented, maybe access is an issue. How has COVID impacted that? It's been tough to find information. The first thing, honestly, that came to mind when you asked the question was the FOIA process is way slower than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're told we're told that, you know, COVID has slowed the process down. And I have no doubt that that's true. Um, but it, it really, really prevents people from getting information that we need to have. Um, you know, at the Tribune, I remember, I think it was uh, one of our one of our data focused reporters had to um, kind of like have a fight with the city to get the demographic data around who was being affected by COVID because everyone around the country had this theory that um, black and non-white populations are you know were being affected the most by COVID. Um, cases and deaths. Um, and of course, that was right. Um, but to get the data to be able to prove it, you need to you need to have the city release that data or mm-hmm. the state or whoever. Um, and getting them to do that was a slow process. And I, I think a lot of newsrooms around the country probably had that fight. Um, and luckily, now we have kind of more, we have had over the past several months, more robust demographic data. I don't know if it still exists because I know COVID data is different now than it used to be. Um, But because we had to have those fights, we got to have that data and we got to tell some stories around what was actually going on, providing people with a very needed public service um, around how to handle COVID, particularly, um, you know, in a city like Chicago, which is heavily segregated. um, The South side is primarily black. The um, north side is primarily non-black. And so if you're in one of those communities, you need to kind of know how to go about your life and make decisions that are going to affect your health. Um, and yeah, COVID has made it really difficult. Um, and I think in a lot of ways it has put government agencies a little bit on the defensive um, mm-hmm. because things are really bad and we all know it. So the last couple of things I want to ask you about both sort of have to do with um, young journalists and your experience in the classroom. The first of which is FOIA, as you mentioned, Freedom of Information Act, which not only is something that's very important, but the question for me lies in the, for for young journalists and, and, and students who you're interacting with, do they have a good grasp on exactly what that entitles them to? I am trying to work very hard to make sure they do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of us are. Um, I don't think they come in with that knowledge. Uh, even our I, even our grad students, I'm not sure they come in with that knowledge. You know, FOIA is really like, it's almost having an, not an attitude, but um, having the right mindset mm-hmm. that you are a citizen um, and you're writing for the service of the public and so you are entitled to this information. Um, a lot of teaching about FOIA is giving them that mindset, making sure that they can own that mindset. Um, so it's not just teaching them how to write a letter, but it's teaching them that, yeah, if you if you need to have something for your reporting, you should never hesitate to ask for it. And it's you should never hesitate to fight for it if you have to fight for it. Um, I have also had to tell them that, you know, having them send a FOIA letter out in like September 
they're not necessarily going to get a response by November, you know, to produce a story by the end of the semester or something. That's just not realistic anymore, um, particularly for, you know, federal agencies. Um, so I have had to kind of instill a little bit of patience in them, which I've had to do for myself too. Um, so yeah, it is, it is something that we're, we're, we're trying to work very hard, particularly in the, in, in the data course and the, you know, and any investigative courses we have here to make sure that they understand, um, why did FOIA come about and, and, and what rights do they have around it? And lastly, something that I, I have seen that you are, you are asked to speak on, and I just, I want you to unpack it so we can have an understanding of what this means, if you could, and that is the limits of using data in America. To me, it sounds like an intriguing talking point, but what, what does that mean when someone asks you to sort of talk about that in a class? Yeah, so one of the things I talk about probably a little incessantly is um, Mimi Onuoha, who is a data artist kind of, um, talks about the concept of missing data sets. And I'm sure this is based in like her own research and, and previous writings. Um, you know, she she compiled kind of a um, like a list of quote unquote missing data sets, which is what that means is a lack of data for a specific population or a specific topic in a in a landscape where data exists for mostly everything. Um, so you have very crucial points where data would help a community but does not exist. And one of the examples, when I read her work, one of the examples she used was, um, oh, what was it? it was surveillance of mosques around the country, which struck me uh, pretty immediately as like, yeah, I've never seen a, I've never seen a data set of that. Um, and I think that would be deemed like a national security issue. So you'd never find a data set on that. But, you know, you would, you, there are lists of data sets like that that do not exist and have not existed. And I think the the core thing to remind people and to teach students is that often those data sets do not exist um, intentionally. They are not there because someone doesn't want you to have those data sets because they don't want you to report on those things. Um, I think having having that knowledge helps me to kind of do my work in a much more intentional way. One of the reasons I wanted to work on the um, travel ban piece was because that piece was making public data that did not previously exist. It was, again, doing a service, um, doing a public service uh, to kind of fill that gap of knowledge. Um, I want to keep prioritizing projects that and research that... Um, continue to make public data sets that are intentionally missing. And this is something that I, I try to talk to my students about as well, so that they're not going around thinking, ah, that just doesn't exist and there's no you know reason behind it. Um, often there is a reason behind it. And if you know what the reason is, you're able to do your work a little bit better. Nasheen Hussein, assistant professor at the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. Thanks so much for coming by and just sharing some of your work with us so we can have a better understanding of your reporting. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Newhouse Impact, a collaboration between WAER and the Newhouse School at Syracuse University. Our associate producer is Emma Hudson. And a special thanks to Dr. Regina Luttrell, Associate Dean of Research and Creative Activity. 
Find more from the department at newhouse.syr.edu research. You can find more about this podcast at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Kevin Kloss. Thanks for listening.